cue the scary music. If you don't look cool, chances are you're doing something wrong. I played Half-Life. I didn't know Morgan Freeman was shooting gravity guns, but... If you don't have scratches on your gun, either you're not training hard enough, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, or you're not pushing your gun hard enough. And think of them as a broken nose. Badge of honor. I don't have a lot of experience with pikes. Um, my understanding is they're very long. Daniel has over 15 years experience as a Marine infantryman. I have over 20 years experience as a law enforcement officer. Combined, we have about 30 years of experience as firearms instructors and 32 years of experience carrying concealed weapons. The purpose of this show is to discuss firearms, equipment, and training as it relates to self-defense from a military, law enforcement, and civilian perspective. Hello, and welcome to episode 83. I'm your host, John McGregor. Daniel's not here, but as you can tell by the new intro, he has been uh, busy working on the show. Today's show is going to be an interview with... Scott Ballard. Uh, Scott Ballard's a co-instructor of mine up at Six Hour Academy. The reason uh, I'm talking with Scott is his background is executive protection, among other things. And I wanted to talk to him about that and see how that relates to people that are just interested in self-defense, taking care of themselves, taking care of their families. Before we get into that interview, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. First of all, Aries Gear www.ariesgear.com. Uh, if you haven't checked them out and bought a belt yet, please do. Also, if you're not following them on Facebook, uh, one of the things they have, they have a immediate gratification list. They have some belts that uh, the orders fell through, and uh, so you don't have to wait quite so long for a belt if you can find something on that list. So definitely worth checking out their Facebook page. And our other sponsor, Dark Angel Medical, at www dot darkangelmedical.com uh, besides the the cool gear the uh, the dark medical kits the pocket dark Carrie's also got some training coming up he's going to be in Tucson Arizona in April he's coming back to the six hour academy in May Little Rock Arkansas in July so if uh, you're interested in finding out more about his training dates or what you need to do to host a class please visit his website as well. We'll put uh, links to both the Aries gear and the Dark Angel medical stuff in the show notes. So without any further ado, here is the interview. Uh, welcome back. I'm here with Scott Ballard. Scott, thanks for joining me today. Yep, pleasure to be here. Uh, Scott, why don't you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, well, certainly. Currently, I'm an instructor at Six Hour Academy. Uh, I teach several classes there, but I'm a master certified instructor. So I can teach everything that we have on our curriculum there. Uh, prior to that, if you go back to the base level, went to college on an NROTC scholarship, uh, degree in criminal psychology, and moved on from there into the Joint Services Command, where they assigned me to the executive protection, dignitary protection details. And I spent a lot of time carrying the Admiral's briefcase for about six years. After that, I went into a private company called 7P International, based in Scotland at the time. Uh, it's a family-owned company, and started out as a driver, and uh, got no quarter from my father whatsoever, so he made me start from the ground up. Worked my way up to the director of training there. Our primary function there was to uh, recruit, train, and detail out protective service details. So a company or an individual would come to us and say they need trained people to protect them. We would recruit and vet, do all the background checks, and do all of the training to create a completely established executive protection detail for them to work with. 
Excellent. And uh, executive protection is kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh, I've participated in you know a bunch of trainings. My background's more law enforcement, but I've never really um, never really participated in executive protection training. You know, I kind of get the idea when I see it on the the roster or whatever that you know, it's going to be a bunch of guys in suits with you know dark glasses touching their ear and you know kind of forming a huddle around somebody. Uh, but I'm kind of thinking that maybe I was a little short-sighted. I'm thinking that uh, maybe there is kind of a, a reason why just a, a normal, responsible citizen might be interested in executive protection. Uh, am I off base with that? or what oh, do you No, think? no, not at all. So a lot of the skills in executive protection work or dignitary protection work, it, they, they translate over to what the private citizen does. And if you think about it, if you're at the mall with your wife and, say, two or three kids or some friends or something, and you're armed, you're basically there protecting them. And a lot of the skills as far as moving them, maneuvering them, knowing what to look for, watching the crowd, watching people, looking for indicators, all the things that a protective service detail would do is kind of exactly what you're going to be doing. So there's a a significant overlap between civilian protection, basically family protection, and in the executive protection world. So different skill areas. What are some some typical skill areas that you uh, that you found that uh, overlap in that arena? Well, I think the important thing to start with here before we go there is to let's talk about EP in general. Most people uh, they they think it's the guy in the dark suit with the glasses and you know he's touching his ear and he's got the really cool microphone he's talking into his sleeve, you know, and he's got the shoe phone and all the other cool stuff. Really, what it is is if for every moment, say it for every hour, you see a detail in public. There's literally been hundreds of hours of preparation. And that's that point work. It's going there, seeing how safe the environment is before you take your people there, before the client goes. And that overlaps to your family. You know, you'd never you'd never want to take your family into some place that you didn't know how to get out of. So you may want to check that out ahead of time or understand it. Know the restaurant, know the mall, those types of things. Understand, you know, ahead of time that if you have to get up and go, then how are you going to do it? What's your plan? And the biggest thing that you have to do, and this is that true overlap, is you have to have a plan. Because if something happens and you experience that error 404 syndrome, the file not found syndrome, you're going to be standing there and everybody's going to be looking at you and nobody's going to be doing anything. And that's what could cost lives. You, uh, you, you, know, you mentioned that for everything that kind of we see with the guy in the suit and so forth, there's kind of 100 hours of pre-planning. Uh, when a typical person takes their family to the mall, they're not going to spend a hundred hours, you know, kind of planning that event. What are some of the areas that, uh, that you're training, you know, based on that type of training, what are some ways that, that you would kind of prepare for those situations that they're kind of more fit in with the, you know, a concealed carry owner's well, the first thing you'd want to do is make sure that your family is part of the plan, that they know what's got to have to happen. So if something were to happen and you guys were to get separated without having to call or text or email, they just know where to meet. And it needs to be a common point. It needs to be something that's established. Uh, you're not going to go to the mall necessarily and interview security and make arrangements, but you are going to know where the exits are in that mall. And sometimes the best exit isn't the exit where your car is. And parking is just another example. You know, when you go to the mall, you're going to think ahead. What's the best area for me to park in? And sometimes that's not the closest point. 
Sometimes it's the one at the end of the mall instead of the one at the, you know, the entrance at the middle of the mall where everybody's going to be going in and out. The reason for that would be, how's, how am I going to get out of the mall the quickest? It's not going to be the same doors that everybody used. Now remember, the average person is going to use the door that they use to get in because they want to go back to their cars. They want to get away because they see their cars as a way to get out. The last thing, if you were in a mass exodus, for example, at a mall, say for a, an active homicide shooter, you, you know, whether you're, you can get to your car or not is not relevant because even if you got to your car, it doesn't really stop bullets all that effectively. And it's going to get locked up trying to get out of the parking lot. So that's that rally point. Have a plan. You know, tell everybody ahead of time. Make them part of it. If we get separated, we're going to meet at, you know, two blocks down the road at the Barnes & Noble outside of the police cordoned off perimeter. Just get out and go straight to that point. You know, that's the type of thing that you can do with your family ahead of time. You can make them part of that plan. Now, for as the individual going and doing their pre-planning, how about does the mall have an interior ring? Do, where did that interior ring, where does that dump out to outside exits? Now, what what is an interior ring? Well, most malls are built as a big building, and then they have the stores in the middle. That's the interior ring of stores that make that interior, you know, that you have the mall hallways where there's stores on the outside. Obviously, if you go through any of those stores, they have a door that leads out the back and it gets you out of the mall quickly. Most people don't use that. They're going to want to go straight out towards the doors they came in, the public entrances. Now, you've already planned it out because you know ahead of time that those doors are there. But on the interior ring, there are interior hallways behind those stores. And sometimes the quickest way to get across, say from one side of the mall to the other, is through a store on the interior ring, through the door, through the hallway, and then through another store on the other side of the interior ring. Number one, it gets you out of the mass panic of traffic, and number two, it gets you out of the line of fire. Hmm. It hides you. So we talk, those are the things that we talk about when we talk about planning. Now, an executive protection detail, we already know this. This is part of training. And we set up egress plans. For every place that we go, that's part of that hundreds of hours. It's the same thing with hotels. When we go in there, the point man's going to go in. He's going to check in a day ahead of time. He's going to balk off all the rooms so that the client's going to be in a room, but there's not going to be anybody next to him. There's not going to be anybody around him if we can afford it. And we're going to block all that off. We're going to keep him at an end. We're going to keep him close to stairways. And we're going to be able to have an exit plan instantaneously at any time, day or night. And that's why we pre-plan that out do it with restaurants, we do it with hotels, we do it with meeting centers, and we get a lot of cooperation from different people. If you're going from uh, corporate security, people have a tendency to really cooperate a lot with us. We work in the same areas. And a lot of corporations have their own EP guys. And they work with us, so we all have these pre-planned set up. You know, they tell you this is what's going to happen. In the world that we came from, we were never that trusting. We always set up our own plans. But you can rely on some guys if you know them personally and you trust them. You can, you know, you can build off those plans. From a civilian standpoint, you know, what would you do? You know, if an if a active shooter, you got an active homicide, and it's usually in the workplace, it's a disgruntled employee or an angry ex-boyfriend. You know, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to stand there and duke it out with them, or are you going to run away? And that's where, in the EP world, we made a decision right up front, based on our personality types, psych profiles, all of that stuff, that we will stand in front of people and protect them. But as a civilian, what is your primary responsibility? That's to protect yourself and your family. I know that your wife would be really happy that you saved the guy from the counter, you know, behind the counter at 7-Eleven, but she's going to be more happy that you came home alive. 
So you have to think about that. And one of the things that I tend to do when I teach the, on the civilian side, when we teach these things, is we ask them one simple question, and it's rhetorical. For what are you willing to kill or die? So it seems, you know, as you're talking about this, it, it kind of seems like having an executive protection mindset. And again, I, I didn't have any executive protection courses, but I know when I try and teach the civilian side of things, you know, I, I try and point out that, you know, if you're in a mall or something and you're with your family and the shooting starts, you know, your best option may not be you as a responsible citizen to you know, go towards a gunfire, but your main responsibility is, you know, to your family, you should be focused on getting them out of it safely. Uh, and it kind of seems like executive protection would kind of be the same thing. If you were, you charged with protecting, you know, a certain person inside a mall, and there's some kind of gunfire in the other end of the mall, you as the executive protection people, you're not going to run to go deal with that threat. You're going to keep your, was it your principal? Is that what you call it? Principal, client, whatever. You're going to keep your client safe. You're going to get them out of there as opposed to getting yourself into a situation that you really don't need to be in. Well, and that's the the nature of the business. Whether we're doing low-profile, low-risk, or low-profile, high-risk, or even high-profile, high-risk, high-value targets like Consec. We ran, we created a lot of details that were running convoy security um, in Southwest Asia, and those guys are high-value, high-risk targets. They're those are the guys you see. You know, they're high-profile. They're out there. They've got vests on. They're carrying their rifles. They are geared up, and they let you know they're there. And, you know, they're daring you, but they still have the same mission, whether you are protecting that, that really high-end asset in high-profile or that low-risk asset in low-profile, the job is still the same. You are not there to duke it out with somebody. You are there to run away and protect your client. You have to cover your client and protect them. Now, it doesn't matter if your client is an air conditioning unit or an executive for a major corporation, or research biologist that's finding the cure for cancer, you protect them all the same way. You will do whatever it takes, including to giving your life, to protect them, because that's the job. But it's important to make sure that you understand the job isn't standing and fighting with people. It's evasion. It's getting out. It's getting away. And that's why we spend so many hours planning ahead of time. In the EP world, if you're shooting, something has gone horribly wrong. That kind of perspective must kind of kind of uh, guide the way you teach your your students. Oh yeah, it certainly does. When when I'm when I'm when we're beyond the basics, once they have the fundamentals down, and we start teaching what I call gunfighter classes, you know, actually putting shots on target in order to protect yourself or other innocent people. You know, we talk about a lot of things like you know, it, why are you going to do this? Who are you going to be willing to do this for? You know, for who are you willing to kill or die? And when that flashes across, the answer flashes across your mind, almost everybody to, to, a, to a man will say, it is my family, it might be a few dear friends, but they're not going to go, oh, it's the guy behind the, the counter at the Orange Julius in the mall. That's, that's, I'm sorry, he didn't fall into that category. But your family is. And it's the same thing when you take on the job in the EP world protection. So when I'm teaching these classes, we talk about, you know, what are you willing to do this for? And how long are you going to engage? And how, you know, how can you get away? Are you looking for other bad guys? Are you looking for your escape route? Are you looking for a way out? And you start to work that in so that as they draw, they might fire, they put a couple of rounds on target, or they might put five rounds on target, whatever it takes. They're instantly at that point in time thinking about communicating. 
not standing there and admiring their work. And that's the artificiality of the range, is, is that we fire the string and then we get done and we put it back in the holster and we talk to the guy next to us and say, hey, look how good we did. Instead of everything that goes on beyond it. See, the thing that we tend to do, I think as instructors and you know, as a people learning, is we spend hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars learning for the event that lasts about three to five seconds. And we don't spend much time thinking about what to do afterwards. And that's the difference, though, when we talk about that EP civilian protection overlap is in the EP world, you spend a lot of time thinking about what to do after the fact. So what are some of the things that we should, uh, as, you know, as concealed carry holders, what are some of the things we should be thinking of? Well, situational awareness. You know, where are you? Because when, you know, if you have to use your weapon, you're going to need to get away, get your people safe. But then the next thing you're going to have to do is get on the phone. Unfortunately, in this era, you know, in the 911 era, the first one who calls is the victim. You know, whether it's accurate or not, there's still, you know, a lot of times that's the way it works. So you're going to need to get on there and get that recording going and telling them, look, I was attacked. I was forced to defend myself. I had to evade with my family. I'm currently in this spot and I'm holding position. I need the police and we need medical help, etc. Those are the types of things that you think about initially. But as you fire and then immediately afterwards, you have to think about how am I going to get away? And if we don't train that, we train ourselves up to the point of stopping. We, can, we work back to the holster safely, and then we say the drill is over. But that's not how it is in real life. We make work it back to the holster, take a deep breath, calm down, and now, what do we need to do? Well, if we didn't have to evade, we need to preserve the scene. We need to start identifying witnesses. We need to identify if there was a weapon, where is that weapon? Make sure it doesn't grow legs. You know, be on that phone. You need to call 911 or you need to train. This is part of that plan with your family. Train your wife or your one of your children or whomever to get onto comms and start talking, saying this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And it's the same thing. Developing a plan is the most important piece because if you don't have a plan, you'll have an error 404. And not just a, as you're pointing out, I mean, sometimes we think of a plan as the pre-plan, but it's going to be the post-plan as well. Well, that's just say exactly the 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 well. You could say pre-shooting plan, post-shooting plan. Pre-shooting plan is just as important. You know why would why don't we run around making bravado-filled statements? Because they can come back and get us later in court. That's pre-planning. But we can do things like in our pre-planning, know the exits, know the evasion routes, and things like that. The other thing that you know we can do is that you you train for the event and you hope that it never has to happen, but you're ready if you do. And then afterwards, that's the post-shooting plan. And really, if you think about it, that shooter has got to survive this in a civil court, in a criminal court, in the court of public opinion, right? In the media. And they have to survive it with their family afterwards and their friends. And they may find out that you know, people that were friends aren't friends anymore if you ever have to take somebody's life. And it can be a difficult thing. And a lot of times you have trouble with it. But post-plan, here's a big one for you. Understand that your cell phone, your home phone number, your email address are all burned. You can't use them. You can't go back to them. Everybody's going to know what they are. You're going to be constantly getting called and harassed. You're going to be getting threats. You're going to be getting news media just bombarding you. So if you don't have a plan ahead of time to create a new cell, uh, get a new cell phone on a burner that you pay cash for or have a friend pick one up for you and keep that number between you, your lawyer, and one trusted friend... That's part of the plan. How am I going to react afterwards? What do I do about my email address? I'm going to go out and create a new email address. 
and I'm only going to give that email address to my trusted friend, and my trusted friend is going to disseminate information to people. Yes, I'm okay, or the family's okay. But during this important, you know, this difficult time, we're not talking to the media. We're not being out there. And you have to understand that you're not going to be able to use the normal things that you used to be able to use. And it can become difficult. You know, it ruins people's lives in some cases. So you have to plan ahead. You have to have that plan ahead of time. How about something as simple as what do you say on the phone? You dial 911. Now, what do you say? Well, some, uh, you know, some people will say you shouldn't say anything, but uh, I think there's some some varying opinions on that and i kind of agree more with uh kind of what you said earlier you want to i think there's a point where you want to say enough that you're not just going to be immediately taken into custody Mm -hmm. you want to be able to at least the officer on scene who's got to make a decision at least he's got something to factor in that this isn't just a homicide and the only information he has available to him is that you're the guy that killed this other guy yeah and therefore he's got to make an arrest well, exactly. And I think that, that the, the don't say anything rule applies after the officer's been there, maybe, after this officer's on scene. But remember, a responding officer in the civilian side or even quick response forces on the in the EP world, those are just people and they want to go home alive. And when they're coming into a situation of which they know nothing, they're going to really want to get a good control of it. So if when they arrive, you're on the cell phone going, hey, look, you know, the police are here and your hands are empty. And you're saying, you know, I was attacked. He attacked me. I was forced to defend myself. I will sign a complaint. And that's it. That's that's enough. That And you make that same statement when you call 911. You have to, but you, know, you can say, you know, 911 operator, I was attacked. I was forced to defend myself. This is where I'm at. And again, situational awareness. Most people completely lose track of where they're at. So you got to understand, where am I at? You could give them the wrong information, and then it could sound like investigators are trying to be evasive. So when you start to build all of that up, you have to start practicing it more and more. And this is that hundreds of hours of preparation thing. How am I going to say things? What am I going to say? How am I going to react? How am I going to do things? How you know, Who am I going to move? What would I do in those situations? And you have to be able to do it at a moment's notice without planned because nobody ever plans on getting attacked. And you have to be able to do it under a severe amount of stress. And you may have to take the time, take a moment to calm yourself down. So let's uh, let's put you in the situation. I'll put you on the spot. You know, you've made that phone call where you know you just said what you said. I'm the police officer. I show up on scene. I ask you what happened. What are you going to tell me? I'm going to tell you that that guy right there attacked me. There's the gun. These people saw what happened. I was forced to defend myself. He needs medical attention, and I will swear out a complaint. What do you want me to do? Um, let's say he's the officer says, well, I, you know, I want you to give a, a full written statement of what happened. Are you going to do that or no, no, absolutely not. You know, the, at that point in time, they're, they're starting to ask for a little too much. They know it too. They know it's the same thing. If an officer is involved in a shooting, he's not compelled to give a statement right there on the spot. He's got time. And that's because we know it takes time. We need those two, you know, those two good REM cycles, you know, two good nights of sleep to get that back, to pick up all of those details. And what all you have to say is very politely and respectfully say, look, I'm not prepared to make a statement. You can do the, I think I need to go to the hospital ploy if you want to use that. Um, I tend not to be a fan of crying wolf, but maybe you feel like you need to. That's up to you. But where this leads to is having a relationship with an attorney. Now, in the teams, we had an attorney. And when you work with a corporation for their security, the details have the corporate lawyers. As an individual on the private side, you have to have a relationship with an attorney. 
You have to have something set up ahead of time because who's going to come get you out of jail at 2 o'clock in the morning? Somebody you just called or somebody that you already know. And you want to have a firearms and self-defense lawyer, somebody who specializes in that, not a criminal defense lawyer. Because you didn't commit a crime. You need somebody who specializes in firearm self-defense. That's a good point. So you have to create that ahead of time. And a lot of attorneys will give you the first 30 minutes for free, but even if you had to go pay for an hour of their time, 125, 250 bucks, it's the best money you will ever spend on your training. Ask them very specific questions. Most importantly, what does precedent support in my area? Not in America, because what goes in Texas doesn't go in Maine. So what does precedent support in my area? What types of loads are the best loads for me? You know, should I use what the police are loading or does it matter in this area? What's the average cost to defend? And kind of have to plan ahead. Yeah, if you carry a firearm, you better have plans. You better have plans for what am I going to do if I'm going to use it? And a big portion of that plan is being able to say to the officer, I'll swear out a complaint. And if he wants you to make a statement, you just say, look, I am not prepared to make a statement. I want to contact my attorney. And at that point in time, the game's over. He's, he can't keep questioning you. You're asking for an attorney. You know, any, you know, anything after that point, unless you waive your right, you know, which you should never do, let your attorney speak for, me, for you from that point forward. Understand that you may go to jail. It's not that big a deal. You, know, you may get handcuffed and fingerprinted. Most of us have already been fingerprinted. You know, accept that it may happen. It may not. But understand that it might and plan ahead. Include that as part of your planning. Your wife should understand what she needs to do. Call your attorney. That's part of the plan. So you have actually um, kind of created some courses that you teach that uh, kind of draw on your experience. Uh, what are those? What's the name of those courses? Well, we have a couple courses that we teach. One is Principles of Personal Survival. And what that course is, is that it is a, it's an eight-hour, single-day class that we discuss creating the plan that I'm talking about. But that plan f- builds your home defense all the way through to your workplace violence and then your social environment like mall, theaters, restaurants type of planning. And it helps you take all the pieces and put them together. And then you just have to start answering those questions and you'll create a plan. And it'll start to make sense. And then you can put that plan in front of your people. So principles of personal survival, it helps you create your plan. It understands from the very base level at home, you know, what do I need to do with my house? For example, lighting and security and, you know, lines of sight and fences and all the other things that we talk about in home defense to workplace things to shelter in place, bug out bags, all those types of things that you should think about that you may want to have available. That's principles of personal survival. It's not that we take you out in the woods and, you know, give you a knife and a, you know, and a stick and have, you know, expect you to build us a strip mall kind of class. Um, the other one that we do is protective shooting. Now, protective shooting is an advanced class. And, and you don't really want to show up into a protective shooting class unless you've got some experience with concealed carry. The first day we spend the time moving people and it's essentially very much like the C- the U.S. Secret Service package with regards to moving people when you have to shoot. Because most of the time, if you think about it, your wife may be next to you or, you know, your girlfriend could be a step or two in front of you. Because they're shopping and they're seeing things in the windows, you're the one looking for the threats. You'll probably see that threat sooner than they will. But you got to move them. you got to protect them. 
and you have to protect them at the same time while engaging the target. And protective shooting allows you to do that. And then it allows you to learn how to safely get away and you still have your firearm in your hand. And it really requires, it's an advanced level course that requires a lot, a lot of concentration and focus. You have to be dialed in. You know, when you show up there, don't show up with, you know, with your brain on half, you know, half speed. But the idea there is, is when you leave and the second day after a lot of force on force scenarios, and you're going to leave with some memory lumps from the force on force, the simulations, but you're going to understand what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do and when should I do what. And you may learn very quickly that running away is much better than standing there and duking it out. Very good. When uh, Do you have any of these classes coming up, or how would somebody find out when you've got these classes uh, available? Well, they could go onto the Sig Sauer Academy website. It's sigsaueracademy.com, um, and they can look it up there. But protective shooting is currently on the schedule for June 17th and August 26th. We don't run it a lot, maybe about once a quarter. And the reason for that is is because we need to build the class up. We really encourage husband and wife teams to come take protective shooting. And if the kids are old enough, 15 or older, they can come take it too. And what they're going to do is they're going to all be learning part of the plan. Principles of Personal Survival is open to anyone, anybody who's willing to be able to, to stay in there and absorb the information and participate in the class. And that is on the schedule now for March 10th. Very good. Uh, what about any... Um... Besides your executive protection kind of course we've been talking about, you got anything else coming up or any other courses that you've uh, put some work into? Uh, well, I, I do the one-handed pistol operator class. And the, the reason that I do those, I have a one-handed pistol operator class, which is a four-hour class, and then we have an eight-hour class. Both of those classes cover strong hand only. So you'll spend the entire day, you'll never touch your weapon with your support hand. You know, it's in and out of the holster, everything reloads, it's all with your strong hand only. When we do one-handed pistol operator two, it's an eight-hour class, and it's the entire day is spent support hand only. There's no four-hour variation on that because it's really difficult to learn that, you know, that draw. And, you know, in essentially the first half of the one-handed pistol operator too, which is support hand only, is spent learning how to safely get the gun out of the holster, clear malfunctions, do a press check, things like that with only your support hand. And we drop the guns a few times. People are learning how to do things, and they're literally, they're, they're support, their strong hand is out of the game completely. So, And the reason that I developed the one-hand pistol classes is because when you think about protective shooting, when you think about protecting your loved ones, Almost all protective shooting is done with one hand because you're moving somebody out of the way. You're controlling for in the EP world, we're controlling the client. It may be you're a one or a two man detail and, you know, because not everybody has the privilege of having an eight man, you know, wonder super detail, but you may have to move your client, but you don't want him to run away. You need to keep him with you so you can protect him and move him where he needs to go. So the one out of pistol operator classes, I think payoff dividends huge not because i expect people to get injured but because i truly expect based on my experience that they're going to be shooting with one hand while they're going to be doing something with the other even if it's just holding a child's hand making sure you're not losing them in the crowd good point so that would uh, also be something they could find out about at sixhouracademy.com yeah they could see that at the sixhouracademy.com website so everything that i teach i teach through sig now mm -hmm. it's just an arrangement i made with them um, they've been really good to me. So I, you know, I, I used to teach privately. Um, now I only have a few clients 
Um, you know, a few pharmaceutical companies that I work for on a private basis, and they're pre-established clients, but they don't conflict with SIG. I think mm-hmm. that it's important that people see the well-rounded package that SIG Sauer applies. Um, you know, the SIG Sauer Academy applies sorts of things, but any of the academies across the board. You know, whether it's Gabe Suarez or uh, Thunder Ranch with Clint, any of those types of people who are putting together real training packages, it's important to go to these academies and get the entire package so that you learn everything you need to learn. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, well-rounded, something that you kind of glossed over or actually totally skipped at the beginning is uh, talking about you and your experience. You're actually a uh, established blogger now yourself, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you could call it that. I, I do write a little bit for ModernServiceWeapons.com. Um, that is uh, you know, Tim Lau and um, Hilton Yam's uh, page, uh, 10.8 Performance. Uh, I try real hard to keep up with them, but some of the writers there are, are pretty good. And, um, you know, I just don't think that what I have to say is all that important most of the times. So. No, it's all good stuff. Yep. I just, uh, I think your last article had to deal with, um, was it with armor maintenance records, or have you put out one since then? Uh, well, that was the latest published was, yes, doing the maintenance thing. And that was that stemmed from traveling, doing some armorers classes. I, what I was discovering was is that the armorers think that their job is to take the gun apart and put it back together. And they really don't understand that record keeping is so important to the job just from an, the ability to justify an expense. If you can't show that it needs to be supported, that it hasn't, you know, that it's been a while since you've done any maintenance, how is the chief going to ever cut the money loose? From a private side, you know, how many rounds do you have through your gun that you're carrying right now? You know, I, the 229 I have on my hip right now, I, I know that I'm between 65 and 7,100 rounds on it. I'd have to look up the exact number, but I keep records on that. And I keep those records for a reason, because I want to know if something goes wrong and I want to know how old parts are. And, you know, maybe something's going wrong and it shouldn't be, but maybe it's just going wrong because, hey, it's been 5,000 rounds since I replaced the recoil spring. And, you know, it's my way of saying to myself, hey, dummy, mm, there's you know, a clue. Yeah. Take <laughs> care of your gun. So record keeping's huge on that. It, it really is very important. Excellent. And they can uh, find that blog post again where? ModernServiceWeapons.com. All right, Scott. Thank you very much. It's uh, good talking to you. I'm sure we'll chat again about uh, some other topics we've got in mind. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure being here. And that's going to wrap up this episode. Thanks again to Scott Ballard for joining me on the program. If you have any questions for Daniel or myself, uh, we can be reached at Daniel at GunfighterCast or John at GunfighterCast. If you haven't already done so, please join the NRA, Second Amendment Foundation, as well as any local firearms groups in your area. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Freedoms Network. Uh, Looking forward to hearing from you. So once again, thanks for listening. Gunfighter cast out.